Hello and welcome to Wildlife Heroes Season 2, One Animal at a Time. I'm your host, Gretchen Miller, and the Wildlife Heroes podcast is brought to you by the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife. In this series, we're taking a closer look at the significant contribution of the rehabilitation sector to conservation efforts. Now, we had a hellish bushfire season in 2019 and 2020, as you would know, and one thing's for certain, it won't be our last summer of fire. Most Australians remember devastating images of koalas struggling in the aftermath, and the struggle continues with great tracts of habitat remaining desolate. That strange call is a koala, but it's getting harder and harder to hear one in the wild. Koala numbers in New South Wales have been declining rapidly. Disease and habitat loss are the main culprits. They're listed as threatened and the koala strategy is an initiative of the New South Wales government that aims to stabilise and then increase koala numbers through a range of actions such as creating reserves, decreasing koala roadkill events, increasing wildlife care and veterinary training and funding research. So we're looking at koalas today and we have three special guests. Later, we're visiting wise koala carer Morgan Philpot in the foothills of the Blue Mountains on Sydney's suburban fringe, where koalas are having a resurgence right where the slow crawl of urban development is also encroaching on their habitat. I know that wires, Hawkesby wires, didn't receive their first koala until about 1998. And then I believe it was several years after that before they got the next one. We're now in the last season for us, myself and my offsider, our other koala carer, John. We cared for 25 koalas over the season. So every year we're getting more and more. And I mean, last season was as busy, if not busier, than the fires that preceded that season before. More from Morgan later. We're going to start with Robert Friend and Valentina Mellor. Valentina is a postdoctoral research associate at the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney. And she works closely with Rob Friend, a farmer who is proactively engaged with the koala population on his property on the Liverpool Plains, which in 2015 had a thriving koala population, but which suffered significantly when the drought of 2016 hit. The tyranny of distance sees our conversation take place on Zoom, but together our guests are breaking a few truisms about koalas. Rob and Val, welcome. Hi, Gretchen. Hi, Val. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having us, Gretchen. My pleasure. Valentina, let me start with you. You describe Rob here as a collaborator and he's listed as a co-author on your peer-reviewed papers. How did you guys meet? Oh, well, the research started in 2016 when Rob came back and we had a brief conversation on the phone about the situation and the discussion was mainly about drought and how water seemed to affect koalas. And Rob, as well as other landowners, had started noticing that when uh, rain was not frequent, koalas didn't seem to do very well. And so I am a behavioural ecologist, so I look at animal behaviour, and that sparked my interest at the beginning. And Rob 
really kept telling me that he thought water was a significant reason for which koalas were declining in the Liverpool Plains. And so we decided that it would be a good idea to try to give them some water and see what was going to happen. Me coming from Italy, I thought that koalas didn't need to drink at all because when I came here, that's what I was told. And it was a big surprise. And we actually witnessed our first koala drinking together while we were driving around this property. And it was really exciting. So this was the proof for us that maybe providing them with water would make a little bit of difference. Rob, your property, tell me a little bit about it and why you've got such a great population of koalas there. Well, it's a 2,000 hectare property, uh, 30 kilometres southwest of Gunnedah. Just to come in to start with, I would like to acknowledge the uh, traditional owners of the property, the Camilleroy people, past, present and future, continually reminded of their past custodianship, let's say. So I just put that up front and we need to respect nature and also we need to respect the past landowners. Why do we have so many koalas? I don't know. You must have a lot of trees on your property. Yes, one third of the property would be good koala habitat. We first noticed koalas coming into the area in the early 1970s. I hadn't seen one prior to then. So you've been there all that time? Well, there must have been a host population somewhere in the hills, in a conservation area, and then conditions or some circumstances were created whereby the koala population could really thrive over the next 30 years. And everybody was noticing koalas around the district. But was it something that the community was doing? Were people allowing more trees to regrow? No, no, it was purely natural. And as Val was talking about water, I suspect that it had a lot to do with hydration of the trees or, or leaf moisture. The 60s and 70s were really wet decades. There were plenty of floods. We could almost write on the calendar for every January that there'd be a flood about the, the middle of January. But that's all changed. So if we can recreate the conditions today that prevailed back then in the early 70s, we can ensure that the koala population thrives. Rob, how long have you taken an interest in koalas? Like, have you always loved animals or did you, have a, did you have a shift at some point in your life? I've always loved animals, cattle in, in particular, dogs. We had horses once upon a time. We're now throttle jockeys. Koalas are just unique. There's something about them. They're a native animal. You can just go up to a tree and have a chat to a koala, but you can't do that to a, a galah or a, a goanna or anything else. It's something just very peaceful, aesthetic about a koala. A terrible heat wave back in 2009 saw Rob and other researchers in the area lose 25% of the koalas they'd been tracking. Everyone was very upset, naturally, that this heat wave was ruining our research. But we didn't drop to it then, and in subsequent years, other heat waves and more koala losses. And over this period, the entire population around Gunnedah was diminishing. But then, having seen a vet give the koalas water, it dawned on Rob. Hey, maybe we've got to provide water to koalas somehow. And that in itself is a massive challenge. Val, can you pick up the story there? Well, how did you guys come to decide that, well, maybe we can just supply water to the koalas in the wild? 
Well, for me, this would not have happened unless Rob communicated with me that he really thought this was an issue. And I had heard it from other landowners, but to be honest with you, you know, we do it as scientists, we do a lot of reading, you know, sitting at our desk in Sydney where there's no koalas. And sometimes you focus on things and just because it's never been reported before, you just ignore it. And I think the strength of this project and of the relationship that Rob and I have created is that we really feed off each other's information and knowledge. And I recognize that Rob is the person that lives with koalas. And so his observations are really fundamental for me to think, hang on a second, it's possible because the weather is changing. It's getting hotter and hotter. The leaves are getting drier. So it's very scientific, really. And an observation of someone that lives on on the same land as koalas that tells me water is an issue, then it's very easy to connect to the fact that if koalas are not doing too well, it might well be in part because of water. And so I really just said to Rob, let's give them water and see what happens. And we really didn't expect what we found. What we found is actually they drink all year around. So it's not just when it's hot. Yes, they drink more when it's hot, more frequently. And when it doesn't rain, they need more water, but they use water if it's available. They use it all all year round. That's amazing. When did you first see a koala free drinking? In 2016, I believe, Rob. Yes. Because at the beginning we were thinking, how do we give water to koalas? Do they drink on the ground? Do they drink up in the trees? Do they lap it? Do they lick it? We don't know. So what Rob did, and this is all Rob, he created from a cut tire a little container that would keep just a little bit of water and just put it in a tree where there was a koala. And then we were driving around one afternoon and sure enough, the koala was there drinking and it was crazy. (laughs) I think we managed to take a photo, a terrible photo, because we were so excited and it was really exciting, yes. And then from there, we moved to more and more complicated designs to make sure that the delivery of water would be as efficient as possible and as convenient as possible for koalas as well. What was it like, Rob, when you saw the koala drinking? I was just like Val, overjoyed. It was the first time I'd actually seen a koala drinking from an artificial source and I let Val approach the tree by herself and just seeing the expression on her face was was a reward in itself. And uh, we both knew then that we were onto something and that there was a great scope for research on Val's part to really delve into this. And observation on your part. And I guess what yes. it, it must have been emotional because what it actually means is that humans can help koalas during these, you know, during climactic times, during this climate crisis time, we can help koalas stay in their habitat. I mean, that's a pretty profound realisation, I imagine. 
yes, well, we've buggered things up that much. <laughs> so we should spend a bit of effort trying to rescue them. And what we're doing is not that different to what we do with domestic animals. We provide water to our cattle and sheep and horses, you name it. We provide water and providing water to wildlife is not such a big ask. We value our livestock, but gee whiz, everybody loves their wildlife too. Val, did that mean you kind of had to drop everything and start looking at this? Yeah, but it was the perfect timing really because I had just finished my other projects and very often you finish a project with a lot more questions than when you started and this for me was the perfect, perfect start of a new project and something really novel that nobody had looked at even if it's such a simple concept providing water you know it's been done forever and yet we have this conviction that koalas don't need water and I hear this more and more often about many other Australian animals and I'm thinking hang on a second are you sure (laughs) so what what do you mean you hear this more and more often I've heard this about some gliders, very specialised leaf eaters, so greater gliders and ringtail possums. I hear it more and more often that they don't need to drink and I'm thinking, ah, yeah, they probably do. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that scientists are sort of coming up with these observations. Goodness knows we need science more than ever at these times. But it does point to something that has not been traditional, and that is working with, well, citizen scientists, people like Rob, who are on the ground, as you say, observing. I think really my luck is that the basics of behavioural ecology are observation of animals in their natural environment. And so my expertise comes from observing animals doing what they naturally do. And so I'm much more open than other people to listen to people that are on the ground. So if you ask uh, someone that does more statistics or biology in the lab, but then they will tell you that everything needs to be controlled in order to understand. Whereas my expertise comes more from observations. And so for me, those type of uh, reports from people that live with wildlife every day are really important. And koalas brought us uh, many other interesting findings like Foxes climbing trees, for example. And that also came from landowners. And as soon as we came out with the paper describing that we had seen foxes climbing trees in Australia, I was inundated with emails from farmers and people that live in rural areas saying, Well, I've taken this photo eight years ago. And, you know, it's very, very interesting. And very often these discoveries remain hidden just because nobody thinks about putting them out there. Or, or asking the question. Before we go on to that, Rob, the area where you live had, has had a pretty profound drought in the past few years, which broke only a year or so ago. So you would have had your water stations out there in the field. Did you observe the koalas coping better with the drought? Yes, I, I certainly did. Interesting you say drought because it was a real blessing for this large laboratory out in the field, so to speak. 
If it had been wet years, we wouldn't know what we know today. So it was a blessing in disguise. I was probably the only farmer enjoying the drought from the koala's point of view oh. and research point of view, but yes. I, I didn't advertise that too much. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you, so you yes, did observe yes. change. Yes, but as Val said, with cameras over every drinker, that's where Val was so good with the science, bringing the, the equipment to monitor and observe. I just wasn't aware of the bush nightlife. I'd never seen a brush tail possum before. I'd never even heard of a squirrel glider, or a sugar glider, or a feather tail glider. I hadn't seen a carpet snake since I was about 16. That's way back in the late 60s. And yet at night time, put out water and a camera, and it's incredible the number of species that come looking for a drink and wanting a drink. So what started off with a with the koala, just turned out to be the pinnacle species, the catalyst, to draw our attention to all these other beautiful species, all in search of a drink. Valentina, what have been some of the challenges to doing this research? Where Rob lives is a good five, six hour drive, I think from Sydney, maybe even a bit more. What are the challenges of really being able to do this observation and, and how are you getting around that? Well, the, the answer is Rob. <laughs> it's actually been very, very easy and I'm quite bossy and Rob is very patient with me and I am also quite methodical in terms of scientific experimental design. This is very important for us to understand that it's not just by chance that these animals are drinking and it's not one animal that is visiting 50 different drinkers. It's something that is happening regularly. And so I really just communicated with Rob and he's fantastic in setting up creating, designing, and following instructions. Just fantastic. Like better than any student I've ever had. <laughs> and so I think it's been great. Given that due to the climate crisis we're experiencing longer, hotter, more frequent droughts when rainfall is minimal, what does something like a water feeder mean for koalas and their conservation as a species. So not just the individuals on Rob's property, but for caring for koalas into the future, in the long term, over their territories. So we know that koalas are facing many different threats and drought and climate change is not the only threat that they're facing. There are many other ones that unfortunately water cannot fix. Like loss of habitat. Loss of habitat and disease. What we know is that they use the water when they need it, which indicates to us that they're telling us that there is not enough water in their environment for them to survive. So drinkers are fantastic and they're very practical and easy to set up, but they do need to be looked after. So they're not self-sustainable things. So what I'm hoping we're going to get to is uh, looking after our the habitat a bit better and provide water either to the trees so that the koalas can access these through the leaves or in natural environments like dams and things like that that can be managed in a different way. It takes a lot of effort to set up drinkers and look after drinkers 
and not everyone is like Rob, unfortunately. Wires, I believe, have taken up your drinkers. Is that correct, Rob? That's another strange thing. If it weren't for the bushfires, there wouldn't be a demand for drinkers for all of wildlife to recover and be resilient, come back. And it's through Val's work and then wires that I was approached to make 800 drinkers. And the, the beauty of it is it's going to be a total community effort. We've got thousands of donors out there that donated to WIRES. WIRES, the central hub or the facilitator. We've got the scientists like Val. We've got industry. The most important resource is the willing landowners that are going to take these drinkers. The drinkers will be provided free. Without the land, willing landowners, people that are so conscious of conservation, it will all fall in a heap. But I'm really optimistic. There is a lot of interest. What does this work mean for conservation? Because conservation at this time during climate change is critical. It's very, very important. So I'm interested in what actually this collaboration between the two of you would mean for conservation in the future. Well, I think we've already shown that the teaming up science and knowledge, first-hand knowledge, has definitely convinced the government that they have listened to what we've done. In 2017, the New South Wales government has taken on this research as one of the Saving Our Species projects and has uh, given us uh, some resources to expand the work that we had done on Rob's property on another property in the Liverpool Plains. And that was really important for us because we also wanted to see are just Rob's koalas that are <laughs> that are drinking or yeah. is this something that happens elsewhere too? So I think the problem is always that conservation, it often... We can do a lot as individuals, but governments and people that are making big decisions are the ones that have to be convinced that this is important. And I think we were very successful in that, meaning that not only the water supplementation was taken on by the Saving Our Species project, but now is a part of the New South Wales Koala strategy, which is recognized as being something important for the conservation of koalas. So I think we got the best result there. Rob, I wanted to ask you how you feel about being involved in this research. It's wonderful. It's very stimulating. Uh, what Val's talking about is collaborative learning, where she brings her special knowledge and skills to the task. And I've got the freedom to uh, experiment with different ideas. I haven't got to wait for a a committee to get funding. I just go ahead and make things, but I always consult with Val. She said earlier on that she's bossy. Well, I don't think she's ever given me a, an order in my life. She always says, Rob, what we want to achieve, and that immediately gives me some ownership in the outcome, and it's just a, a wonderful experience to be involved in the pointy end of science and achieving something. And conservation, at the end of the day, should be an enjoyable thing. And this is where we're hoping to bring in the rest of the community. It's not Rob and Val can't do much by themselves. It's, it's got to be 
the total community. And as you say, there's a, a groundswell of appreciation of nature out there in the wider community. Val and Rob's work has also confirmed, as they mentioned earlier, something other farmers knew about but the science didn't, that foxes will climb trees to get prey. And then the water feeders had to be redesigned to avoid supplying the invasive predator with both a drink and a meal. There's much more to their ongoing collaboration, but we must leave them there and head now to the foothills of the Blue Mountains in northwestern Sydney to meet with a koala carer who has good news about Sydney koalas, a growing population of genetically very diverse animals. My name's Morgan Philpot and I'm a koala carer with Hawkesbury Wires. I've been doing koalas for about six years, so not that long, really. Um, I still consider myself to be somewhat of a novice, but, but you learn as you go and you never stop. And the reason I joined WISE really was all about my daughter. She wanted to join when she was about 13 or so, and she couldn't join. She wasn't old enough, and I took her around to see a good friend of mine who's been in WISE since it started, and Vicky told her that she has to be 18 and she has to have a car and a licence so she can't do it, but that I could do it and that Tyler could come along to all the training courses with me, which is what she has done and she's now a member herself. That would have been about eight years ago. So she's now, my daughter's now 21 and studying at university and working at the zoo and doing a lot of things with animals these days. They're a very special animal and they do something to you. I think when you start to work with them closely, they unlock something inside each person, I think, and it makes it very hard to get them out from underneath your skin, as it were. Yeah, no, they're, they're amazing animals and really there's, there's nothing else like them on the planet. And we're very fortunate to live in an area where we have a, a growing population of koalas here. Yeah, tell me about that. We're in the Hawkesbury region. We are in an enviable position that our koala colonies here appear to be growing and growing quite rapidly, which really is in stark contrast to pretty much everywhere else in the eastern states where we have koalas. I know that Wise, Hawkesby Wise, didn't receive their first koala until about 1998, and then I believe it was several years after that before they got the next one, where now, in the last season for us, myself and my offsider, our other koala carer, John, we cared for 25 koalas over the season. So and every year we're getting more and more. And, I mean, last season was as busy, if not busier, than the fires that preceded that season before. So... We do need more carers, but it takes time and people really have to be prepared to learn a lot and wait and put the time in before they can get animals and start caring for them appropriately under our supervision. I have so many questions arising from the fact that there's an increase of koalas in this area which is semi-rural. This is the area, this fringe, where animals intersect with humans on the edges of city development are interesting aren't they because on the one hand you've got exposure to the animals and you're saying that there's increased population which is brilliant on the other hand they're intersecting rather too closely aren't they and that's why you're getting them into care yes in in part yes it's always fraught with danger when the koalas are encroaching on the urban interface and of course there's issues like dogs and cars which account for a lot of koala deaths 
the biggest threat, without any doubt, is deforestation and habitat loss and fragmentation of existing habitat. And certainly in areas And that's like what this, you've got here, yeah. That's exactly what we've got here. So the existing habitat is being fragmented by fairly rampant subdivisions and development. And obviously, it's something that's not going to go away. This is going to be a continuing problem in this area. And part of what we do when we release our, our rehabilitated koalas is that they get absorbed into a research program by an organisation called Science for Wildlife, headed by Dr Kelly Lee, and they track uh, the koalas that we release. And that provides an opportunity then to see exactly where they are and mark the trees that they're using. So there is a permanent record there of where core koala habitat is. And hopefully down the track, this will be a really important tool to help us stop some of this development that keeps wanting to pop up everywhere. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of problems in this area with chlamydia infections in koalas. That's, we, most of the koalas that we get are being treated for that. Chlamydia left untreated is usually always fatal and it's a very slow painful protracted death and it becomes obvious once they have symptoms to members of the public that can see with the infections in the eyes and they get a thing called wet bum due to the thickening of the bladder wall which renders them incontinent so there are some obvious symptoms unfortunately there are certain things that we can't fix with the chlamydia infections and once they have progressed past a certain point the internal damage becomes too great and that we just can't fix that at the moment and unfortunately, those animals need to be euthanised. Now, there is research happening up in southern Queensland at the moment. They're working furiously to come up with a chlamydia vaccine for koalas, which is super exciting. Like, that would be an absolute game changer for us to know that we could release a koala and that they wouldn't get it again. We do have repeat offenders that come back in every two to three years. And unfortunately, each time they come back in, there's a little bit more damage done, particularly to the eyes. They, they suffer from excessive growth of skin in the conjunctiva of the eyes and the eyes fill up with skin and it's common that we have animals with varying degrees of corneal ulceration and scars which again is very difficult to fix and when we have these repeat offenders come back that's the area that we see mainly that deteriorates the most as each time the eyes get worse and worse at this point we have still been able to release those ones but you always worry that there will be a, a critical moment where they go, well, they're both totally blind now, we can't release them back. But, I mean, until that happens, then we just keep doing what we do and hope that the, the doctor up in Queensland can um, finish his research and that we can get some vaccines in our fridges to make sure these guys don't get reinfected again once they've been released. So what is leading to the increase of koalas in this area, do you think, given that it is fragmenting? Are they moving in or are we just noticing them more? What's going on? Uh, well, that's a good question and I don't think anyone really knows exactly why. The uh, general consensus from my understanding is that basically it has taken the populations here this long to start to recover from when they used to be hunted back in the early 20th century. And that, you know, that was devastating to koalas everywhere. You can't really prove that. But that would stand to reason that it's taken, you know, nearly the better part of 100 years for them to bounce back from, from that. So not really a bounce? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> no. No, not really a bounce, a crawl if you're lucky. But they have come back. And one of the, the things that Dr Kelly Lee has done with her organisation has done the genome sequencing of our koalas here. I believe that was released in about September 2018. It was very surprising. They found that in terms of genetic diversity, they were off the charts, far higher than any other colony they've done anywhere in Australia. And again, don't really know why, 
but it makes them even more important as a hub for conservation because they hold the genes for the entire species here. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you always get genetic variations and diversity in certain areas. These guys sort of have everything. They're not missing out on bits here that other colonies might have or, and so forth. They have everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist at all, but it is an important thing. Genetic diversity enables the animals to adapt more readily to change. And obviously, in current circumstances, our environment globally is changing quite quickly. And hopefully this will give them the tools to be able to keep up to speed with those changes. Can they breed when they've got chlamydia? Yeah. Is that the point? Yeah, that's yeah, why can. you release them. Yes, that's right. Tell me about the relationship between yourself as a carer and other carers and scientists. I've worked a lot with Dr Kelly Lee, which has been really great. The work they do is really important in helping us understand more about koalas. There's so much that we don't understand. And through the work that Kelly does and, and other research groups as well, we get to learn more about these animals. It would be horrible to think that they would disappear from the face of the planet without us knowing much about them at all. What's coming up out of that? Well, we're finding there was one of our koalas that came from Bilpin the night that Bilpin burnt. And so she was released back where she came from. Uh, obviously into pockets that weren't burnt. But we found for quite a number of months that she would go into the really decimated parts of the bush and uh, survive off all the young epicormic growth coming off, off the trees. So uh, a lot of times we're told as carers never to feed young leaf that's red, it's too toxic. But she was in an area where that's pretty much all she was eating. And, um, and things like seeing the koalas eat charcoal. And we think they do that because it's like a filtration thing so they're eating these leaves which are higher toxicity but they're then balancing that by eating charcoal and again i mean we're just presuming that that's why they do it but yeah it's something i hadn't really seen before when you release them back where do you put them so we always try to get the koalas back to their exact site of rescue if we can or if it's not suitable to get them back to that exact point we will always try and get as close as we can to where they were rescued because they are very territorial and it's important they go back to the area that they know. What does that mean though in terms of that urban interface and releasing them close to where the people are? Yeah it's hard, it is hard because there are lots of roads and there are lots of dogs and both of those things together are very bad for koalas and they do result in the deaths of a lot of our koalas. Unfortunately, this is sort of where the koalas have decided they want to be and all the koalas we get come out of dog territory and dog country and I'm presuming that it's something they get taught about by their mum as their joeys and growing up. It doesn't always save them but they must be doing okay because we're seeing so many more of them every year out of these types of areas. When you're in the presence of this little beast, yeah, how do you feel? Oh, look, I'm still fascinated by the animal. I mean, I've, I've lost count of how many we've looked after over the, over the years. They're all different, and they never cease to amaze me. Uh, we really have nothing else like these guys, and I can certainly understand why they captivate not only Australians but people all over the globe, and, and that really came to the forefront in, in the fires. It's easy to underestimate the power these animals generate, particularly around the world. And the, the international interest, I've never seen anything like it before. But it helps get the message of conservation out there because they are in so much trouble. We need all the help we can get. 
the thing that I keep th- coming back to is the fact that we are on the urban fringe here and mm. you've got a koala population that's increasing and you've got people getting to mm. live with koalas, which yeah. is brilliant, right, yeah. because they get to feel a bond yeah. with the presence of the animal, even if it's not <laughs> an actual bond, but they, they become familiar. Oh, yeah, they, they take ownership. They, they take ownership. And I think that's really important tool for engaging people in the community. They have one in their backyard and suddenly it's their koala and they feel that they have to protect it, which is a good thing. So it's certainly in areas where Dr Kelly Lee started her research up in Mountain Lagoon a number of years ago, the community up there are still so heavily engaged in protecting their koalas because of the work that she did door knocking out there to get access to private property to track the koalas that she was tracking and again the the community out there have taken ownership they're their koalas they're very protective of them and they fight for them and i think that's a really important thing with research and and you know getting that community engagement Koala carer Morgan Philpot there, and before him, researcher Valentina Mellor and her collaborator and farmer Rob Friend. This is the Wildlife Heroes podcast series two, one animal at a time, from the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife and supported by the New South Wales Government through its Environmental Trust. And please do check out our other episodes when we visit a raptor rehabilitation centre, a bat school, talk about rehabilitation data and storytelling, and spend a day with a wildlife specialist vet. It's been such a pleasure to make this series with some remarkable people and animals. I'm Gretchen Miller. Hope you'll join us again.